Ruby Frankie was known by millions as a very tough mom. That's exactly the way she wanted it. The social media star amassed a huge following of supporters and detractors alike, preaching the values of strict discipline. But you'll learn in a new podcast available exclusively on Wondery Plus how the small empire built by this momfluencer crumbled the moment her 12-year-old son escaped their home and called 911. Wondery and Law and & Crime bring you the new podcast, The Rise and Fall of Ruby Frankie, which explores the allegations of starvation, torture, and emotional abuse leveled against Frankie and her business partner, Jody Hildebrandt. Learn about the family's path to stardom, the depravity investigators uncovered inside the home, and hear in-depth analysis of the ongoing criminal trial. Listen to The Rise and Fall of Ruby Frankie exclusively and ad-free on Wondery Plus. Join Wondery Plus in the Wondery app or on Apple Podcasts. Where's that dust coming from? Still finding debris after vacuuming? Eufy X10 Pro Omni Robot Vacuum has 8,000 PA of powerful suction to remove debris deep in carpets. And it's totally hands-free. Want to know more? Go to eufy.com. That's EUFY.com and discover X10 Pro Omni, the best in class all in one robot vacuum for only $799. In this episode of The Bell Tale, Billy Wright, his role in the LVF UVF feud, and how the INLM murdered him inside the Mayor's prison. Dr. Mo Molam has urged people to stay calm following the shooting death of the prominent loyalist Billy Wright inside the Mayor's prison. The INLA gunman crawled over the roof of H Block 6 and jumped into the LVF exercise yard. He then ran across the yard and shot Billy Wright up to five times in the back. Once a charismatic leader in the UVF, he broke away to form the LVF, leading to murderous feuds. The slaughter of two young women and a man in a mobile shop on a Craigavon housing estate. The murder of Dennis Carville, shot on the shores of Loch Nay, And the killing of three IRA men and a civilian in an attack on a Kappa pub. Wright himself was gone down in 1997. How did the INLA's Crip McWilliams get his hands on a gun inside a maximum security prison? I can assure you uh, that the INLA did not kill, kill Billy Wright without the help of someone on the inside of that prison. The circumstantial background to it would lead me to strongly suspect that the security services arranged to have Billy taken out of the equation. And what was the LVF's bloody response? Before Billy Wright was even buried, the LVF began to avenge their leader executing a plan that Wright himself had drawn up a year previously. With me to discuss the LVF and how the INLM murdered Billy Wright is the Belfast Telegraph security correspondent, Alison Morris. But first of all, a quick recap of part one of this podcast. Billy Wright was actually, he was born in Wolverhampton, England. But when he was just four, they returned back to Portadown. By the time he was 15, he joined the, the YCV. He believed that the UVF was the only organisation that had the moral right to defend the, the Protestant people. At this stage, the UVF were in negotiations with the British government. He believed it was a, a sellout. And that is when we see the formation of the LVF. And they went on then a killing rampage. Now, we've mentioned the formation of the LVF led to a feud with the UVF. Can we talk about that? 
Yeah, I mean, there was incredibly bad feeling, mainly because obviously they were on a mission at that stage to get themselves involved in peace and involved in the peace process and their leadership were heavily involved in the negotiations and he was obviously a thorn in the side to that. But also there was personal feelings because he had defied them. He defied their order to leave Northern Ireland, to remove himself and to disband his sort of gang. Um, And at that point in time, the UVF itself were trying to move its members along. And if one person could be so defiant and undisciplined, well, then everybody else could follow them. And therefore, they had to try and show that they were exerting some kind of discipline um, in in relation to that. And and the LVF, I mean, at that stage, it's, it's interesting if you look at those feuds that came after that and those sort of loyalist infighting and feuds that, that it happened after that, their enemy changed. Their enemy changed from Republicans to each other. And you could see that loyalism was devouring itself. And the LVF perfectly was suited and adapted to that sort of feud type situation because they had been such ruthless, such a ruthless gang, but also such a tight knit gang and so so tight knit with each other. Um, so therefore, you know, the smaller a gang is, and especially in terms of criminal gangs or paramilitary gangs, the more difficult they are to infiltrate because there was such loyalty to each other um, among that time. And also remember journalists who were trying to cover those, those situations at that time and we, we must specifically speak about Martin O'Hagan you know he fell foul of the LVF because of his continued attempts to expose what they were up to in relation to their criminality that went hand in hand with their, their paramilitarism Does the LVF still exist? It does in the form of, of a, a criminal gang you know when you know when you speak to the police or security sources in terms of that they will stay and they do still have power over small pockets of, of housing estates in um, specifically in places like you know North Belfast and parts of Antrim, but they are literally now just a, a criminal drug gang, and they're they're really consisted and and they centre around one family. But you know their their main motivation now is is one of, of making money for the, themselves. You know they're not linked, and haven't been linked in a long time to any sectarian attacks. But you know the sort of loose structures of the LVF, I would say, still exist. Now, I suppose it's not disassociated with the LVF-UVF feud, but there have been allegations made by Billy Wright's enemies that he had been an, an informer. Yeah, and, you know, there's there's some sort of documented stories in relation to this as well. So, as I spoke about Martin Dillon's book, The Trigger Man, which is a really interesting book, he was of the opinion that Billy Wright had moved to Scotland to flee his life as a paramilitary and to try and start again. I think one of his sisters was living in Scotland at that time who he was quite close to and that he was arrested on on terror charges, never charged with anything but given an exclusion order which sent him back um, and he, you know, Dylan's book would sort of insinuate that that was because he was of more use as an informer here than he was not in, in Scotland living a, a different life and so he was purposely brought back to re-involve himself in that because he had became valuable as an informer. There's a lot of, of um, there was a lot of collusion that existed at that time and we know that, you know, especially between um, some loyalist paramilitaries and, and people who were connected to possibly the UDR and others where it was more targeted information was being passed on people as well. Um, and there is a lot of allegations that still surround Billy Wright's use as an informer the way he was taken out of action and imprisoned at that time and then murdered, if he was an informer, his use had clearly ran out at that time. You know, his worth, I suppose, had clearly ran out. 
um, because, you know, while some people who have been accused of being informers still exist and still exist sometimes even in the political arena at this stage, you know, Billy Wright's life was brought to a very abrupt end in one of the most secure prisons, apparently, in, in you know, Europe at that time. Alison, we've discussed the LBF career of uh, Billy Wright, discussed his charisma, we've discussed allegations he was an informer, but eventually he ended up in prison for what reason was he incarcerated? He, he was eventually prisoned for making a, a threat to, against a, a woman. He had threatened to, to kill her and she had come forward and give information against it. It was, um, I suppose it was unusual. What happened was, this was around March 1997, he was said to have made death threats against a woman called um, Gwen Reid who lived in, in an estate in Portadown and he was sentenced to eight years in prison for that. I suppose even prior to that, you could see the sort of seeds being set for the sort of removal of him. Um, when I spoke, because I, no one I was come to this, I did speak to, to some loyalists who knew Billy Wright from that time, just to ask him their, their sort of um, feelings. They said that, you know, that during that time when he was a pastor, when, you know, he was preaching, he had left paramilitarism behind or seemingly so that he remained acting in, in an advisory role I suppose to the to the UVF because he had such a long-standing relationship with them but clearly this soured quite bitterly after when he, he formed the LVF so you have to think of all the politics that were in play at that time you know the UVF was in its own its own journey um, the NIO was on a journey the British and Irish governments were on a journey and he became a thorn in the side, you know, of, of all of those things. Um, there was, I suppose, while he was, there, there was a breakaway, you know, what he what was said to me by a senior loyalist is there remained a, a sort of almost respect for him among the UVF rank and file, even though it was quite obvious that something would have to be done if they were going to continue on their sort of path to peace as they were at that time, that they couldn't allow him to continue um, running this sort of, you know, sectarian murder gang as, as he was. What was interesting, which I thought was one of the very interesting things, is, you know, is that this person who had been a very senior sort of loyalist at that time said that Billy Wright had told him that the split with UVF had broken his heart, that he felt that he was the one who was betrayed in all of this, you know, that he was against the peace process, but that they had expelled him when he had been so loyal to them, I suppose, in doing their bidding. Um, during that time, he'd given his life to this cause. It's a, you know, and it's funny, you know, I've in, I've spoken to ex-prisoners, and there's a lot of them. Sort of, I think as time goes on, feel very bitter that you know that maybe they had involved themselves in, in murder, they involved themselves in mayhem, they had you know as a result probably destroyed their own mental health, served loads of times in prison. They have to live with it, the guilt of what they'd done, um, and that they felt that it was for nothing. But in terms of Billy Wright, had he lived, had he survived that, you know, where would he be now? Would he be a politician now? Would he be a political figure or would he be you know some old boy sitting you know somewhere very bitter and angry talking about how he gave up his life for a cause that betrayed him you know um, but yeah I thought that that was a sort of interesting point that I hadn't actually considered before that he felt that he was the one who was wronged by the UVF and not the other way around Now before we tell the story of how um, Billy Wright was 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 murdered in prison, which is incredible in itself. Can we talk about who was Crip McWilliams? This is, you know, where the story gets in, in, I suppose, incredibly complicated because what happened was Billy Wright, as I said, was sentenced to, to serve eight, eight years in prison for, for making death threats. 
he was initially sent to McGabry prison on you know close to just close to Lisburn um, before then being transferred to the maze or the H blocks what happened at that time was and remember the prisons were completely bulging at this time was that the INLA had two parts of one of those H's and the LVF had the other now Crip McWilliams had been an INLA man he'd been sentenced and served time as prison for being um, a member of the INLA but he had fallen foul I suppose you could say of the INLA shortly before this what happened was that in 1991 December 1991 he was among a group who were in Frames's Bar in the city centre on Union Street they were ejected from that and returned and he shot the bar manager Colin Mahan um, later tried to portray it as you know this was a you know planned attack and they thought he was a loyalist and it was a mistaken identity but it was absolute nonsense literally it was just as a result of them being ejected from a bar the INLA then distanced themselves from him he was serving time in McGilligan prison for that murder in order to I suppose redeem himself he was ordered to take hostage and kill a fella called Kevin McAlorum with a gun that had been smuggled into McGilligan. This was Cripp's, I suppose, way of getting himself back into the favour of the INLA. Um, McAlorum was the, the, the son of a very infamous sort of career cr- criminal called Maxine McAlorum, but he had been, during the INLA split, he had been a follower of the sort of late chief of staff, Hugh Torney, and he was blamed for murdering Gino Gallagher. So he was on the hit list of the INLA. They sent, um, Crip McWilliams was told if he killed him that that would be it. So, you know, he would be back in the fold and he could come to the H-blocks where there was obviously a better regime for their, their prisoners. That was unsuccessful. Prison went into lockdown. This all came out as part of the, the Billy Wright inquiry and McWilliams um, was then transferred to the to the maze along with John Kennaway, who was one of the other people who killed Billy Wright. So his debt to society was still not served, you know, so he still hadn't redeemed himself because the McAlorm attack did not go as planned. Just as a completely side note, Kevin McAlorm would later be shot dead outside an integrated primary school near Lisburn in 2004. You know, revenge was a dish started very cold at that stage. You know, I suppose he thought the troubles were over and he was safe, but he wasn't. Um, So what happened was he was moved to the maze then. Now there was questions asked during the Billy Wright inquiry as to whether, why he was moved there, when clearly he represented a a danger to other prisoners, but that's where they sent him. And because of the the shape of the wings, the authorities decided that sort of C and D wings of H-Block 6 were for members of the LVF and A and B wings for the NLA, and there was wire fencing between them. So that is where he was sent to serve his sentence, and that was then where we, we have seen the beginning of the plans to attack and kill Billy Wright in the maze prison. There was a public inquiry into this, into what happened next, I suppose. And it is almost an incredible story that someone was murdered, was shot with a gun inside a maximum security prison. From the public inquiry, I suppose, what happened on that day? How did it happen? 
The inquiry was, it opened in 2009 and that was as part of a series of inquiries that were launched at that time. What happened was there was an investigation carried out by a retired Canadian judge, Peter Peter Corey, and the allegations of collusion between prison services and police services and a number of murders that happened here. And as a result of that, you know, we had the Rosemary Nelson inquiry um, and we also then had the, the Billy Wright inquiry. Billy Wright's father, David, had campaigned for this for quite some time. Um... So the inquiry was centred around not just the, what happened in the prison on that day, but also the lead up to that. Um, he believed that his son had been sacrificed, if you like, by the prison authorities who'd allowed this to happen. Um, so, you know, to go back and, and show what I suppose what happened that day is, it, it is, as you said, it's quite the most, one of the most bizarre stories. The maze was a prison that was full of controversy, I suppose. The most embarrassing part of that was, you know, the escape of all the IRA prisoners where the British government had to stand up and, and justify how one of, they claimed, the most top security prisons in Europe had been breached in that way. But but security in the prison after that had been tightened considerably. And then as the ceasefires happened and, and you know, things loosened up, security then again started to lax. And, Already, you know, many years ago, long before, there's very little left of, of the H blocks now. I think there's only sort of one block and and one of the, the old Nissan huts from internment. But when the prison was completely intact, I went up and was doing a tour of that and one of the prison governors was there and was able he was able to sort of put, I suppose, a lot of what happened into a different perspective from a different story. But a lot of what the inquiry centered on was why there was nobody in the lookout tower at the time of the killing. He claimed that they were so short staffed and it was becoming quite often that, that that would happen. But on the, the, the day he died, which was on the 27th of December in 1997, he was due, Wright was due to receive a visit by his then-girlfriend, a girl called Eleanor Riley. Um, at the inquiry showed that at 20 to 10 in the morning on that Saturday, a prison officer called Wright and another LVF prisoner, Norman Green, to the... Um, to leave the visitor centre. The way that the prison was, it's a huge big complex, the, the maze, you know, if, you, if, if you'd if have seen it, you know, and I, I did several tours of it before it got knocked down, the scale of it's quite enormous. Um, so you had to be transferred by van to the to the visitor centre. Wright had just gotten into the, the, the prison van, which was parked in the yard in between, when three NLA men so you had Crip McWilliams, you had Kenaway, as I said, and then another man, another guy called John Glennon. And they had two weapons that had been smuggled in to the prison. So they had a semi-automatic pistol and they had a, a Derringer as well. Um, obviously, the inquiry looked at trying to establish how this happened. It didn't really get very far or conclude how they'd managed to get those weapons into the prison. So the two handguns had been smuggled in. Um, McWilliams was armed with one. Glennon was armed with the other one. Kenaway was his job was to keep the, the driver of the prison van sort of subdued while this was all going on. They had previously cut up in a section of the wire fence which joined the two and the hole then they had tied together with shoelaces and then put a stack of chairs in front of it to disguise it. To, you know, it wasn't the most sophisticated of plan. They had to then go through the fence, climb over a roof of a wing and then drop into the yard where the van was parked. Um... McWilliams opened the door of the van and this this is all from an account that was given in the Starry Plough which would be a publication which would have been linked quite closely to the RSP, the sort of political wing of the NLA. They had published um, at one time an account of how this happened. They claimed, you know, he opened the door of the van and he shouted armed NLA volunteers and then opened fire. Um, we know that the other prisoner 
sort of cowered in the, the corner when he realised what was happening. A member of staff also sort of hid in the corner of the van. Wright attempted to, to fight back and stand up and kick out his, uh, you know, his, his assassins, but he was hit seven times. He died instantly. Um, he was, you know, he died in the back of the van. The three NLA men then climbed back over the roof, went back through the fence the way they came. They returned to their wing and to their cells, and they handed over their firearms to the authorities and gave themselves up for arrest. And the entire operation from start to finish, from them climbing through the hole in the fence, lasted just minutes. Um, and just like that, you know, I suppose one of the most high-profile leaders that loyalism ever had was dead. And so there became the sort of end, if you like, of the story of, of Billy Wright. The NLA, whenever they were arrested, too, it must be said that the Crip McWilliams had a, a statement that had been pre-prepared um, that he handed to authorities. And he says that Billy Wright was executed for one reason and one reason only. And that was for directing and waging his campaign of, of terror against the nationalist people from his prison cell in Long Cash. While the structures of all those paramilitary groups, whether it be the IRA, the UDA, or the UVF, were that if someone in a senior position was imprisoned, they were replaced on the outside by someone else while they were in prison. Wright was not replaced. He continued to oversee the activities of the LVF from his cell directing operations through series of phone calls and visits. Um, and so he remained the leader of, of the LVF, LVF throughout that time. Um, so Crip McWilliams, John Glenn and John Kenway all stood trial and were given jailed for life. But remember what year this was. So then the Good Friday Agreement was negotiated, the prisoner releases were negotiated and all were released from prison early under the terms of the Good Friday Agreement. Um, and that probably wasn't even the end of their story either. Kennaway was returned to prison in 2008 when his licence was revoked and he was later found dead in his cell in the punishment wing of McGabry Prison and it's claimed that he had choked himself to death with a, with a ligature. His family disputed that as well. Crip McWilliams moved to, to Newry where he developed a, a rare form of leukaemia and he, he later died of, of cancer. Um, so, you know, the, the, the people who were involved in that, why we have documentation who were linked to the sort of inquiry and also the NLA's own version of what they say, what happened. Um, you know, most of those people are now gone. Was there retaliation for the, the killing of Billy there Wright? Was, there was a lot of retaliation. You know, the, the night of Billy Wright's death, the LVF opened fire on the dance hall of the Glengannon Hotel near Dungannon. Um, that was a, a sort of hotel, I suppose it was owned by a sort of high-profile Catholic business family. There were about 400 teenagers were attending the disco there. There was three of them were wounded and one person was killed. That person was later claimed as a member of the IRA by the, the organisation. Um, you know, the retaliation continued and then the LVF continued to limp along, but it was never the same organisation again, you know, after the, the, the murder of Billy Wright because he was, I suppose, the driving force behind a lot of their activities. I think that the one thing is is that, that the reason why we have such a detailed account of what happened in Billy Wright's murder from the NLA themselves is because the rumours that the prison authorities had colluded with the NLA to have Wright taken out became so strong that they felt they had to deny it and that's why in, you know, in 1999 they published that long um, account of it in the Starry Play magazine, you know, and, and I suppose for anyone listening to this, he wants to know more that's still available online and that gives their version of events of, of what happened. But, you know, I do think that there is a cautionary tale to be had from all of this, you know, 
Um, Billy Wright was by the UVF, was built up into this sort of cult-like bogeyman type figure who was going to take the war, you know, to the IRA. But once his usefulness was finished and once his usefulness was done, you know, he lay dead in the, the back of a, a prison van in the, in the Mayo's prison. Um, I do think that we're in a very sort of difficult time and I write quite a lot and we speak to people about the sort of differences and the, the, the challenges facing the unionist and loyalist community over the protocol. But I do think, you know, that, you know, that these stories, I suppose, while they may be historic now, are very important to ensure that, you know, young people do not get a romanticised version of this time. You know, there's nothing romantic or or honourable about any of this. These were just innocent people losing their lives and people who were caught up in the middle of that um, to show, you know, that, you know, our, our conflict was terrible and it was bloody and whatever issues there are of the Northern Ireland Protocol can be solved in a political manner and shouldn't ever make their way back out onto the streets in the way that we've seen the, the problems that existed around the sort of mid-90s in, in Mid-Ulster under, you know, the rule of Billy Wright. Alison Morris, security correspondent with the Belfast Telegraph. Thank you very much. This episode of The Bell Tale was produced by myself, Kieran Dunbar, sound designed by Graham Davidson. The clips were from the BBC, UTV, RTE, Sky and the Ulidia Legacy Education Trust. Ruby Frankie was known by millions as a very tough mom. That's exactly the way she wanted it. The social media star amassed a huge following of supporters and detractors alike, preaching the values of strict discipline. But you'll learn in a new podcast available exclusively on Wondery Plus how the small empire built by this momfluencer crumbled the moment her 12-year-old son escaped their home and called 911. Wondery and Law and & Crime bring you the new podcast, The Rise and Fall of Ruby Frankie, which explores the allegations of starvation, torture, and emotional abuse leveled against Frankie and her business partner, Jody Hildebrandt. Learn about the family's path to stardom, the depravity investigators uncovered inside the home, and hear in-depth analysis of the ongoing criminal trial. Listen to The Rise and Fall of Ruby Frankie exclusively and ad-free on Wondery Plus. Join Wondery Plus in the Wondery app or on Apple Podcasts.